Welcome back to Guru Live, showcasing three days of talks for people working in games, TV, and in this case, film. Scheduling and budgeting your first short film or feature throws up quite a few questions. How many extras do you really need for a crowd scene? If your idea is set in space, does that send your budget to the moon? In this talk, we take you from development to green light with a line producer and BAFTA-winning short film producer. We have Rebecca Morgan, producer of the short film The Operator, and line manager Michael S. Constable for Second Coming, Free Fire. Your host is Sarah Potts. We'll kick off with Michael, if I might, Michael. What informs your decision about taking on a project as a line producer? Uh... Well, myself, I'm not, um, I'm not the creative aspect of a film. I'm the kind of the logistical, the financial side of things. So when I take on a film, I kind of look at it different from, say, Rebecca, who looks at it from a kind of more creative side of things. I look at it from a, a practical, logistical side of things. So when I break down a, a film or look at a film, a potential film I want to do, I kind of look at it and weigh out the kind of pros and cons, be it the financial, the logistical. Um, so if I take on a film, say like the last one I took on, I'll wait up from, literally from the first page to the last page and, and break it down to a point of what's the key areas that I'll look at and go, from me who literally has to govern everything that's not a creative side of the thing, for me how can I you know, provide for that film, make sure that that film is, is kind of the highest quality that can be. <coughs> So for a film, say, like Final Portrait, which I've just finished, it's kind of a, it's a period piece. So straight away, you're having to break that down for any film that's, say, two, three years ago. Straight away, you start breaking down periods because if you go from 2015, 2010, a lot of things change. So if you go from 2015 to 1964, you know, 1950s, a lot of things change. Costume, you know, the vehicles, the locations, everything becomes... Are very select so when you kind of start breaking that down a lot of stuff you have to kind of allow for and it's only when you kind of look at it from a budget point of view you have to kind of weigh up where, where's your key areas where's the most you know dangerous parts in terms of from a budget what's going to cost you the most amount of money from a logistical point of view what's going to be the hardest uh, thing for the crew to basically make as it were so my job is very much to come in and not be a creative person you know, a lot of people always ask me, what do I think of a script? And I'm always the first one to say I'm the worst one to ask because me personally, I can't read a script and, and thoroughly enjoy it, I have to say, because I, I, I always hear people say, I read your script, I couldn't put it down. That has never happened to me. I can always put a script <laughs> down and come back to it you know, two days later. Uh, but for me, I will always kind of look at it and say how can I make this film better? How can I kind of better what they already have? Uh, so from a script point of view, I will always look at it from the actual making of as opposed to the creative side of it. To, to me, you know, I, of course, I hope that the director and the designer and all that sort of stuff make a beautiful film and, it's all, and the actors do a wonderful job. To me, you know, to be blunt, I don't really care about that. That's, that's not my side of things. As long as I facilitate and make sure that I provide as much as I can do for each department, then I hand it over. And it's kind of nice that when we start shooting the actual film, technically my job's kind of done. I'm just waiting for you know, basically shit to happen. You know, someone's, someone's dropped a camera, someone's done this, someone's late, or something along those lines, which is when... 
but for, for me, the main bread and butter for me is that prep of just organising as, as, as much as I can do to make sure I provide within the budget constraints of what I've got and a demand of, be it producer or director or whoever's there and the financiers, to kind of make sure I provide, as it were. And are there sort of general guidelines or observations that you would have on you know, being presented with projects that are necessarily because they're being made by new filmmakers or they don't have big name cast attached they're going to be low budget projects without wanting to cramp a director's creativity Mm. necessarily whether there are things that you just read and go this is just going to be impossible uh, that, that perhaps young filmmakers should or new filmmakers should be a little aware of in presenting but um scripts to people like yourself and saying we've got £500,000 I came from commercials where you know, our budgets were you know, five grand to one and a half for a BMW thing. so there's a big varied distance there to when I started in film I went straight back to doing 300 grand and then worked myself all the way to the top to where I am now and I kind of sit there going there is no real difference to doing the last film I just did to my first ever film the biggest thing I noticed though that having done a couple of low budget and going into the bigger is the time really and I think a lot of the stuff that when I look back on films that I did for like half a million or less is the time you allow to prep a film is always the one that kind of it's not forgotten about but it's kind of underestimated for someone like myself I think to especially for a first time and I work with a couple of first time directors and producers um, I think to kind of Except that there is a bit of limitation in terms of the knowledge and I think you have to rely on someone like myself to kind of say that I don't know this certain elements and especially when it comes to the organising of things. So when you look at a script, you know, the, the first thing I always discuss with a director is the time that's allowed to shoot the film because I know for a first time director, I mean you can do a couple of short films. I mean I've had a couple of like music video directors come to me and say I want to make this feature film. Uh, we've got this you know, do this great shot here, great this, great visuals and that sort of stuff. The first thing that I always ask is, are you, have you ever shot a page count a day? Have you ever shot two, three pages a day? And that's the first thing they go, not really. Uh, and then you have to kind of break out and say, well, what's that actually mean? You know, if they look at it and go, oh, the rule of thumb of saying that a, a minute a page, but then you kind of sit there going, is it really? I mean, you could say such and such walks across a field. That's just one line, that's just one shot. But what is actually happening? What's the action? You know, what's it entail? Is there extras? The location side of things? Is there vehicle? It, it, you have to properly break it down. So, uh, for me, for the low budget side of things, it's it's really spending the time when no one's really on the payroll, kind of getting that and really fully understanding from a team, from having the producer director myself in a kind of room for a good couple of days to really harness and say that these are the difficult areas. From a director's point of view, what's your key areas? What's your big scenes? You know, because my job, really, to kind of schedule the early schedule for the first AD is to put, basically, that script onto a schedule for the director to shoot. At the same time, the director has to feel comfortable knowing that those days they can accomplish. Because, for me, the, the pet hate for a first-time director is always being behind. Because you have to go up to them, and, and unfortunately, you, I have to be the, the, the bad guy because you do kind of say it's a producer, but at the same time there's a producer that wants to protect the integrity of the film. So there's a kind of, you know, a 50-50 for a producer. For me, 
I have to make sure I complete this film. So I'll look at a script and say, what scenes do you not need? You know, you look at the eighth of a page and say, do you really need that scene? Can we cut that scene? So I don't really want to go up to director and say that I want to cut these scenes because it will help save money or save time or stuff. But at the same time, you have to kind of be prepared to say that to director. But for a first-time director, it is quite hard to kind of say, I'm going to have to cut this. Or if the director is aware that the, the time restraint to complete a day is, is, is cutting down. Because every film I ever do, you're always shooting Lawrence Arabia in the first half, and you're shooting EastEnders at the end. Because you're, you're, the DP's lighting it, and it's great, it's wonderful, it's... You know, I'm making the best film I can. After lunch and the, the hour it takes for the crew to get from their lunch back on set and everyone be ready, you're kicking the day through and you're sitting there going, one take wonders, doing all that sort of stuff. And you lose the, for me, you lose the integrity of your project. I don't want that to happen because I, I personally think that you should have that nice flow all the way through. So for, for the low budget side of things, the timing is always forgotten, I, I find. And I think that's the main area for me that even to this day that you know I was just working with a director at the moment and he and I both agreed that for the first two weeks pre 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 prep he and I would just literally sit down and just go through line by line just work it out it's slow and it's arduous but that stuff is always forgotten about on the half a million pounds because you just don't have the time you don't have the money you kind of as soon as a financier says we'll give you the half a million or you just raise it you're straight into production, you're straight into hiring people, you shoot the film, and it's only when you're shooting it you realise, shit, I've got this, or this, isn't, this has been forgotten, or this has been happening. So for me, it's very much the timing, it's, allowing that time. It's preparation, really. Absolutely. It's spending Absolutely. the time on preparation. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rebecca, congratulations on the operator. Um, you were doing what Michael was saying he didn't do. You were taking that creative role as well as being in charge of the sort of the finances etc and you raised your money through a kickstarter campaign it was seven thousand was that your budget yeah we i think we had our target as seven thousand two hundred um because kickstarter would take something like ten percent fees and how how had you you budgeted that you you knew that that was how much it was going to cost to mm. make the operator and was that using experience you'd had in other areas of the industry? How did you kind of create that budget in the first place? Yeah, um, I was working for a corporate film company and in corporate film they kind of let you progress quite quickly. So I'd been kind of a runner for a year, then a production assistant. And um, being a production assistant, I was budgeting corporate films. So I kind of knew what things cost, well, what some things cost. And... We, myself and the director, sat down and we just we just did a budget. We thought, what do we what what is what is everything going to cost, and what can we do deals on? What can we get for free? And we worked it out. We we kind of wanted ten thousand. We knew if we thought if we have ten grand, we can do everything we want. But we knew that we weren't going to get that on Kickstarter. So we um, said, okay, let's raise it. Let's lower it to six and a half thousand and see how we go from there. So you'd done your research on what, what it would be likely and possible to raise on, on Kickstarter as well? Um, yeah, so Kickstarter is it's quite tricky. You have to, you know, you can't ask for too much, but we didn't, we didn't want to ask for 2,000 and then hope to get more. We knew we had to get at least six, six and a half. 
yeah, we, we kind of knew what some people would give us, and we, we did a few sums and thought, well, they might give that much, they might give that, that much, we could each put in this much, and we thought six and a half was manageable. So you had sort um, of some contingency around it in your yeah, own Yeah, we, we knew that if we had to, we could put a grand on the credit card each or something, yeah. like last resort. Luckily, we didn't have to do that, which is good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we had a few... Uh, random donations. We had, uh, I think it was, I think we had two days left and we were exactly £1,000 short. And I remember speaking to Caroline just think, oh, we've, we've, we've messed up here, we're not going to do it, it's so embarrassing. And then I got an email from Kickstarter saying that I had, someone had donated £1,000. I thought, oh my God, who's this? I didn't recognise the name, neither did Caroline, the director. We were really confused. We were calling around people, like, who is this person who's given us £1,000? And it turned out to be a friend of our associate producer. And he said, yeah, that's my friend, but she's not, she's not rich and she's also quite ditzy. And we thought, <laughs> oh, she's meant to give £10 and put £1,000 instead. So I'm like, oh, my God, we can't give a refund. We're really stressed out. And then um, it turns out that she had won £50,000 on the scratch card. Um, the day before wow. and had seen on Facebook that her friend Jonah was raising money on Kickstarter and gave us a thousand pounds. So nice! <laughs> Things like that can happen but Absolutely. you can't rely on that happening because no. it's not very not. common. Scratch cards are not yeah. a recommendation as, as a way of budgeting your, your first film. Um, and was, as, a, as a first time short film producer, were there areas of the budget that kind of came out and bit you, that really surprised you? And when you looked at the budget as shot, you know, what it actually cost to make, compared to the budget you'd prepared previously, were there differences? Yeah, um, there were a few, not surprises, but we knew, for example, production insurance was going to be a massive thing. Um, I'm really kind of... I don't want to make any savings on insurance, and that's the most important thing. So I got like the best insurance and paid for all the liabilities I could. If I'd had advice from a producer, they might have advised me not to do that because it wasn't necessary, but I think we spent about £1,000 on, insur- on insurance, so that's quite a lot of our budget. Um, but we had, you know, we had expensive kit. We had an Alexa. We had loads of lights. So just insuring that kit for two days just costs a lot of money. Then things like transport, getting the kit delivered, because we were filming at a weekend and we had to get it dropped off on a Saturday morning and that, the kit company charged loads of money for that and we couldn't, we couldn't get a deal for that, which is quite annoying. Um, so I wouldn't say there's any surprises, but it, it becomes a lot, a lot bigger, I guess, than you think it's going to be. I think when we first started planning it, we thought, oh, we'll just use like a C300 and a couple of panel lights and it'll be fine, because we were used to doing corporate film. And then when we got our, our DOP on board, she was like, no, I want an Alexa, I want these lenses, I want a track and a curved track and all these things. It became a lot bigger. That never, that always happens. Yeah. No matter what budget, as soon as the DP comes on board, that's it. <laughs> always cost you money. Yeah. And Michael, sort of the, the, the same question to you, are there things that you think producers, particularly young producers that you work with, just don't consider or are, are always incredibly surprised by as lines in a budget or how much they're going to cost? I think it's the logistics side of things. I mean, that's... I'm always kind of the negative side in the room. Not negative, negative but I'm kind of the realist in terms of how do we facilitate... You know, if you've got a script that has 40 locations, you have to physically break it down in terms of 
you're doing 40 unit moves, you're doing all that sort of stuff. And when you kind of read it from a script, I know when I read a script, you kind of sit there going, oh, there's only a couple of locations. It's only when you physically break it down, you go, Jesus, there's hell of a lot. Because it's the smaller scenes that you kind of just skim through. It's, you know, Jane drives to this house, and you just, it's a part of the story, so you just kind of forget about it. It's only once you physically break it, break it down, you go, that's an actual location, that's a complete unit move. So there's stuff like that. And then there's the kind of just the infrastructure, the sheer size and the demand side of things. Because on a piece of paper, you can put, like Rebecca was saying, you've got a DP, you know, X amount, the equipment and all this sort of stuff. It's only once you, 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 you bring those talents on board and then you start, from a creative point of view, dissecting it and then people put their input onto it. You know, nine times out of ten, the DP is always going to say, I want to shoot on 35 film, I want to do this, I want to have the new sky panels from Warner Brothers, it's going to you know, look like Wonder Woman. You kind of sit there going, that's great, I can't afford it, how can we make that happen for you know, a shoestring, as it were? So I think from a producer point of view, it's kind of... Because for them, they rely on me, and, and they have to rely on me in terms of saying that, can I facilitate their, ultimately their film? Because for a producer, they're with it from the get-go. They're developing it, they're bringing it all the way through the script stages, to the prep, to the shoot, to the, the post side of it, and then it's, you know, for how long it is to do the distribution side of it. So they're on it for a long time. So when it comes to the, the you know, the, the shoot side of things, my job is to alleviate that. So for them, there's quite a lot of stuff which they won't really think about because they're thinking of the bigger picture. It's how do we actually get, you know, our cast attached? How do we get you know, this attached, how do we get you know, the distribution deal that we want to get it to whatever house, so there's a lot of stuff they think on the bigger picture my job is very much to come and take on the smaller pieces and make that work so they don't ultimately have to think about it, so to answer the question, there's a, there's a hell of a lot that usually is skimmed upon, and it's only once you start bringing the HODs on board a lot of the small cracks cut in, and my job is there to kind of really fill them and just kind of say that we're sorted so I think, unfortunately, for the low-budget side of things, and it's going back to that time side of things, you kind of say, OK, we've got, an inf- we have got what, four weeks, so, you know, effectively 20, 25, 30 days to make you know, the film. Uh, how can we make this, considering there's so much demand from this script? I mean, obviously, from the early stages if you're conscious of the limitations of your budget and you're looking at a script... Like I did a film uh, called Borrowed Time about five, six years ago, and it was a 100 grand microwave film. And we re- I read it, and it was probably seven to ten locations. Um, and, and the producer and director were very conscious of the idea that they didn't want to take the money away from, from set by having to have the infrastructure of changing rooms and all that sort of stuff. So if they could they would kind of write a script which is very much singular in locations. So for them, they're very much aware of it. So when I come on board, in a way, my job's kind of done to kind of say, look, if we can kind of minimise or utilise a location as much as we can do for various opportunities throughout the script, those sort of things which are usually forgotten, but if you're kind of on top of that from a script point of view uh, and you kind of say, look, from... You know, for, say for a hospital scene if we can utilise another room for a front room or if we can kind of dress some, it's, it's kind of maximising as what you can do so you're physically not taking away time and money away from you know, what you're shooting which unfortunately for the short films you, you do kind of suffer 
quite a lot on it in terms of just the sheer logistical side of it. Thank um, you. Brilliant. So what about one of the areas that years ago when I was producing short films always used to floor me was this, this kind of the post-production side of things, mm. which, you know, on short films as a producer, stroke line producer, presumably you were, you were dealing with, mm. whereas then most of the time when you get onto feature films, the line producer will depart after wrap, after the shoot, get the hell out of there. Um, but there's still post-production to deal with. Um, if you can afford a post-production supervisor, fantastic, but a lot of low-budget films can't. Any tips from you, Rebecca, about post-production? How did you find that side of things? Um, yeah, it just took ages. Um, it, we knew it was going to take ages. We... We had a bit of money reserved for post, but not enough. And, you know, to get things done, you need to pay people. And if people are doing things for free, then they'll do it in their spare time, which could be three months later. So when we finished, we shot it in November, and then we fin- didn't finish it till May the next year. So it was quite a long post-production phase. Um, but for a short, not really that long. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we had money left. We paid for some Foley and some ADR and the sound design, we paid for that, but everything else, all the editing was done for free. Um, so, I, but I think for sure, it's if you haven't really got, you know, if you're not, you're not really time pressured to finish it, unless you want to get it into a certain festival, then there's time pressure. But if you just want to finish it and then do whatever you want with it, then you don't need to rush the post-production phase um, and just be prepared for it to take a long time. And were the, were the technical elements about post-production that you wished you'd known then, that you are now aware of? Or were, did you feel pretty well prepped for that? Uh, I don't think so. I think um, the sound design was maybe a bit more complicated than we thought it was going to be. Um, it took a bit longer than we thought it would, it would take. Um, but I don't, there, wasn't, there weren't any major surprises for post-production. And then had you allotted money out of your budget for festival entry for all that that kind of the life of the film after it was finished yeah we i mean caroline and i didn't have money of our own to spend on festivals so we had reserved some money from our budget originally i think we had about 400 pounds left over for festivals which didn't doesn't doesn't last very long um it probably i mean if you on average it's about 10 quid a festival so the money disappeared quite quickly um, but we had reserved a bit. But then when you get into festivals and you've got to send a, deep, a drive to somewhere or there's, like, there's costs involved in that, so you can never really budget for the whole festival process. Um, but I think it's important to try and, if you are going to do Kickstarter or apply for funding, to try and save some for festivals because otherwise you end up spending your own money and it can get really expensive. And likewise for you, Michael, is that something that you have to allot an element for on kind of indie films that you've made for that kind of, obviously for the post-production side, but then for the film, which presumably as a feature might be doing the festival circuit as well, or is that not? Yes and no. I mean, though a budget one, you can. Uh, I mean, for recent ones, no, because then you kind of look at for a distribution company, and these are kind of things of where can I foot the bill somewhere else that I don't have to physically pay for it? I mean, even though technically for line producers we don't usually do the post side of things, um, you still have to plan properly and afford properly for if there is a post supervisor or the producers take over. So, uh, you know, when we first start 
on a prep side of things, it's organizing the post, making sure everything's covered, everything from the ADR to the visuals to the visual effects side of things. Uh, and then there's the accounting side. There's the kind of things that you, it's the less glamorous side. It's that accounting. You know, if you're doing a, a, a public funded um, film, it's the tax credit that's, that's there. It's kind of accounting for those side of things. That's usually in the post is when you, you have to kind of account for all your expenditure, put it all through. But when it comes to the festival side of things, you, you, you kind of hope. I mean, you, you obviously have your contingency that's there and you, you, you try to keep, keep it as sparingly as possible when it's on the film. And, and you have to kind of, uh, I think with the producer as well, they know the pitfalls. So each week when someone like myself are doing cost reports for how well the film is doing throughout the shoot, if there are certain situations where it comes up and says that I need to spend a contingency amount on, there is that kind of, as long as everyone's aware, including the director, I like to make the director aware of if there's certain decisions, certain kind of financial decisions that take away from contingency because ultimately when you get to that post, no matter how well the shoot goes, there is always need for a bit of contingency into the post side of things. Um, so, but when it goes to the festival, it's, it's quite rare. I mean, we might allow for a bit of a trailer or a bit of a poster, a bit of, you know, we'll do like a, an electronic press kit where we do the interviews and various different bits like that or some stills. But as long as low, that minute bit we provide, but the rest of it in terms of the submissions and all that sort of stuff, that very much is the producer's bag. And this, again, is where the con contingency is where I like to kind of keep you know, a small amount for them to kind of say, we can submit it to this festival. But if you're lucky enough to have a distribution company or a sales agent to kind of promote the film, there is that kind of agreement to say that how much are they willing to give to the film to, you know, get your film seen and out there, as it were. So it's a 50-50 it's a depending on how lucky you are and financially and the financiers and all that sort of stuff. And is there any kind of sort of percentage rule of thumb of the cost of the money? on a small feature film, or does that very much depend how many different financiers are involved? Yeah, it can do. I mean, there, there, there are some bits. I mean, you have a rule of thumb, usually for a film around about 8%, I'd say, that I would allow for if there was... If I didn't know who the, the finance was coming from and someone said that put a budget together, I would put 8% in. It's kind of... You don't know where the finance is coming yet, if it's going to be a private or it's going to be a public-funded... I mean, usually for the public funded, there isn't a kind of finance fee that's attached. It's, it's, it's more of a, a producer agreement. But usually for the, the private investments, there is a finance fee for, you know, for the investment or whoever the exec producer is that's bringing the money into the film. They'll do it for a certain fee. Um, and there are companies that do it as their kind of profession and they charge a, a flat line. Um, so there is kind of a bit, but it's depend again, who the financier is. If it's a public funded, usually you don't have the the kind of question mark about finance fees. Uh, but if you start going into the private, I mean, if you're doing like enterprise investment schemes, uh, again, because you're a bit like you know, crowdfunding, you're not you know, going to other investors. They're, they're putting the money into the film. So you don't have a, a finance fee that's there. So it's, it's just depending on who's financing, financing your film, really. So, uh, okay. yeah. Just a... a Quick question about scheduling, and then we'll, we'll put it open to the floor. So, Rebecca, how did you set about scheduling? Did you have an assistant director you worked with who helped you with the scheduling of it? How long did you take to, to film? Um, so, we shot, there was one shoot day and then one setup day beforehand. So, we originally thought it would, we kind of thought it would be two days, and then the DOP said, no, definitely one. 
And then um, when we worked out, we, t- we basically had to set... We were filming in um, a white office environment. And when the DOP saw it, she was just, like, terrified because white walls are, are awful for DOPs. So she... They, we basically had to set up a whole lighting rig on the ceiling, so like scaffolding poles covering the whole ceiling with several lights hanging down. And that took half a day, and then we had to, the production design had to set it up to make it look like a fire control room, not a film production office. Um, so it was a whole day of setting up, and then the shoot day was kind of, you know, call time 8, wrap 7 pm, so it wasn't that brutal. Um, but yeah, we had a first AD who helped us with that, but I guess for a short, it's not nearly as manic as scheduling a feature. And how, how do you, Michael, work with your director, with your first AD, when it comes to scheduling a film? I mean, the, the, it's, it, it's the best thing in the world to have a first AD you can rely on, because they're, they're, he or she is going to be the person that's going to shoot your film, he's going to deliver your film. As much as I can do... and designer and DP can shoot it um, the, the first AD is going to be the person that's going to govern and make sure they bring that film in so I think from a scheduling point of view I mean I would always do the, the initial budgeting schedule just something that mirrors the budget to a schedule that you, you try and work with the director and the producer on from the first AD point of view they usually come on board when there's a lot more factors involved so they know everything from the cast availabilities to yeah from the creative side of things there's a lot of stuff like a DP will say oh we'll need a day to pre-light here so you kind of trying to factor that in you know if you've got children how many hours can we have if you've got animals how many hours can we have uh, you know, if there's vehicles if there's restrictions on locations by the time a first AD has come on board you're usually kind of quite well advanced into the into the, into the prep side of things so he or she has enough to kind of build up a better more in-depth schedule uh, still using the kind of basics that we built to, together in the early stages but it's kind of nice and I think it's good for someone like myself to support the first AD in giving her or he the, the support by saying this is the knowledge I know from speaking to the director because you know the director will always be forth winning but by the time we inter-prep you're going to have everyone on this dog trying to chase down the, the director saying, what do you think of this? As soon as costumes start, that's it. What do you think of this tiny piece of vest? Or what do you think of this sock? And, like, and it just takes all the time out of the world at the director's life. But when it comes to the first AD, he, would, he or she would try and put as much time into it, but he needs all the factors. He needs to know the design, the, you know, the costume side of things. You know, how long does it take for... Like, uh, we just finished with Jeffrey Rush and we had to do hair pieces and teeth and all that sort of stuff. So the first AD will have to sit down with the designer and say, how long is that going to take? Because you know, if I've got a restriction on his time, how long does it take to get him ready so I can have him on set, so I can have all the rest of the cast? You know, and then when, if you've got a, a location restriction that you have to be out of location at 4 p.m., straight away you have to kind of say, okay, if I have to be out of that location at 4 p.m., but our day don't, doesn't finish until 8 what else can we shoot for those four hours? And again, it's kind of maximising what you can do. It's there. So uh, when it comes to that schedule and having a, the first AD, for me, it's you know, second to none. It's yeah. brilliant to have them there. Hi, uh, I'm a DP. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, oh, the costly um, ones. Yeah, more lights. <laughs> um, I want to know... Um, Mike, I, I loved... Your, your photography was just unbelievable. <laughs> that 
curve tracking shot. Oh my God. Yeah, amazing. Anyway, um, but my question is to you, actually. Um, I want to know where you visually see failures, like literally in the look. It's, it's all of you, I guess, but where you visually see failures in the look of a film or in, in you know, the presentation of a movie, where there have been failures in the budget. You know, for me, I look at a film and I know when the light, depending on what lights they've used. But I don't notice other things. I don't look at it, maybe you would, and say, hang on a minute, were they missing a really decent AD because the timings are off? Or is it, is it fixed in post because they've put more schedule there? I just, so where they've lacked budget. budget or made a bad budget yeah, decision. Yeah, where is it apparent in the actual film, in My your opinion? <laughs> I, I mean, this comes up quite a lot, actually. Uh, and I think for, for various budgets, it's always... For me, and I'm sure other people disagree and or focus on it, for me it's the extras. Whenever you see a film, and it's like, we, we did a film down in the Greenwich Naval College, which is huge, and they shoot Les Mis and you've got a thousand extras and it looks like a you know, huge film. If you put 20 extras on screen, it looks like 20 extras. And it, it's, it's, it's how you get the DP and the director, and this, this is not my take, and this is obviously, once the DP and director have done their, their regular location, said that, we're going to need more than 20, 20 people. But at the same time, there is the limitation of the budget. I would always go and say that if I'm doing my job correctly, I'm providing as much as I can do. But at the same time, there is that element of compromise. So you have to kind of pick and choose the elements. I mean, for me, uh, if you're looking at the kind of the media side, the film, question mark over HD, from a practical point of view, HD will always be 35 because it, it, it's... It's a solid media. It's something which you can control, you can play back. There is, there is a less, less of a risk. Uh, then there's the stylistic, you know, is it better? Is it, if you look at a HD, whether it be a Lexa or a Red, is it better than 35? You know, for me, from my creative point of view, I would prefer to watch a 35 because if I'm watching, you know, a period piece and it's on HD, it looks too TV for me, it's very crisp. But if you're on 35, it stands the test of time. It can sit quite happily with, you know, Michael Douglas and all those guys, you see that there, there is that element that's there. But at the same time, it's the cost. I mean, film is getting... is, com, is com, uh, incomparable costs. They're getting quite equal now. There is a certain element that everyone say, oh, film's more expensive. That, it used to be, but, you know, since Fuji went and Kodak have now kind of utilised it, how, how do we maximise in this kind of today's market? It's just there's a lot more restrictions on film than there is HD. HD, you can put the camera on, you can shoot as much as you want, and how much is a hard drive? A couple hundred quid. With film, you're very still much restricted to how much stock you can afford. And it's kind of good. I mean, for a first-time film, I would never say, let's shoot on this film, because my worry is, again, if you've shoot your, shot your uh, stock for the day and you're using tomorrow's stock, again, it's that pressure on time. If you go to a first-time first director, you've only got three roles compared to yesterday's five, straight away, it, it, there's a pressure that's there. And then so, presumably you're not necessarily going to have the coverage when so it, it's it there. comes for, for, to the for me, going back, for me, every time I watch a film and I see 20 people, so it's, when, it, it's, it's the stuff that you see. I mean, your design will always be great, yeah. but it's the physical body. It's the kind of, if you're going to do a market scene, for me, I have to make sure that I fill that market scene. I don't just put 10 people in setting some lemons. You kind of sit there going, then it feels like you're watching... Yeah, one of those low-budget ones that no one really cares about. You have so to. So, if you can't afford those fifty extras, then I guess it's also about thinking cleverly and inventively about the way that you're going to shoot it. From my end, what I would say is visual effects. 
where the sort of the battle has been lost because you know there's been a lot of love put into the production design into the photography and then you have maybe and it may be a couple of key shots that are visual effects shots but nobody's thought about that till really late on in the process and then haven't had the money and had to really kind of wing it and it takes you out of a moment so much if there's a bad visual effects shot. So again, I'd say, like Michael's been saying all the way through, it's preparation. It's get your production designer and your DP talking to whoever, even if that's a guy in his bedroom. And there are some very, very talented guys and girls doing amazing visual effects in their bedrooms. Just get those people talking early. Is there anything that, that really makes you think, oh, there was a flaw in the budget there or they didn't use the money wisely there? I can't think of anything in particular. I think it's one of the things I'm probably learning about more as I progress in my experience as becoming a producer one day. I'll notice it more. I think you know, the kind of camera that's used, I can't, I, obviously I can tell between film and, and HD, but I can't quite tell between like an Alexa and a RED and, or a, I don't know, whatever other, other camera. So I'm still kind of getting used to the differences and, and how important it is to try and get the best camera you can because you can tell what it is. So I think I'm still learning. Yeah. Hello, um, I'm a writer producer. When you're going around the festivals, is there are there better ones to go to? Is there like um, what's the experience been like for you with the festivals at the moment? And do they they accept? the same format at each festival or are you having to change? That's a Rebecca yeah, question. Um, when we kind of put our festival plan together, we, we went on the BAFTA-recognised list of festivals, which I think, how many is there? I mean, about 30 to 50 festivals around the world. Um, and they're kind of the ones that BAFTA recognise as being good and they're the ones that, if you get into, you can then apply to be nominated for a BAFTA. So that's a good place to start. Um, and then, and then it's kind of like, there's things like Film Freeway, which is you can put all the information of your film up on there, and then you can apply to festivals through that really easily. A bit like Without a Box or the other one, but Film Freeway is a lot more user friendly. Um, and it just you've got to you can't apply to every festival because it, it's too expensive. You'll end up getting into loads that you don't even remember applying to, you don't want to go to, and um, it can get quite hectic if you're constantly keeping up with the festivals and sending things to them and filling out forms. It's very time-consuming. So I would say, kind of go to the BAFTA list and then pick ones that are that are near you that you can go to and experience. You know, try and try and and then also try and pick ones around the world. But again, just try and look at what that festival, what their kind of ethos is. You know, are they particularly involved in films with these kind of messages? And does that suit your film? Um, so, yeah, so go, go, go by that. But, I mean, don't spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds because it's just ridiculous. So with festivals, the same almost as with distributors or sales agents, it's knowing your market, knowing the kind of demographic your film is going to appeal to. And putting those two together. Oh, and in terms of format, um, yeah, they accept dif- they accept different formats. Some of them want ProRes, some want DCP, some want H.264. So if you have ProRes and H.264, you'll be fine. Um, a lot of them do want a DCP. So the, kind of the bigger ones want DCPs, which are expensive to make. 
So the advice that I would give is if someone asks you for a DCP, ask them if they can make it for you. A lot of the festivals do that, but they don't tell you, so you have to kind of ask them, and that can save you some money. My question is twofold, I guess. First of all, how did you get your amazing cast? Um, and second of all, uh, to Rebecca. Um, and also, I guess, in the same uh, area, if you do get an amazing cast, is there added extras that you should think about in the budget um, because of that? Rebecca first, and then... Yeah, um, we were just really lucky. Uh, I don't... There's no kind of trick we used. Um, Caroline, who's the writer and director, she... She had the script. She really wanted Kate Dickey to be the main role. She was her favourite actress at that time and kind of didn't necessarily write it for her, but had her in mind as she was writing it. And she somehow find, found her contact details and just sent her the script, and she really liked it. And she said, they met up, had a chat, they liked each other. She said, yeah, if I'm around when the weekend you shoot, I'll do it. And then when we had... So that we had her kind of signed... And so we could put that on the Kickstarter page, which, which helped. And then once we had um, Kate Dickey, getting Vicky McClure was a lot easier because Vicky loved Kate, wanted to work with her. Again, was totally up for it if she was free at the time, which they both were. So it just kind of worked. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah. And did, was that, were there any implications of having Kate? Did it sort of have to change any elements of your budget or did she just kind of muck um, in? Basically, she was aware that it wasn't going to be for money. Um, we, I think we offered, I think we gave them like 150 pounds each or something. Um, but we kind of got them a nice Addison Lee car to take them to and from set, and we paid for Vicky to stay in a hotel the night before, and obviously paid for her trains from Nottingham, and kind of looked after them as best we could. I think for if you've got two actors who are quite established and they're kind of they're busy and they're working. For them, getting a fee for a short film isn't really what they want. They want just to be looked after and, and have a good time, basically. So, so yeah, that's we kind of got away with that without paying them any money. And, and for you, Michael, once once one gets onto that the feature film level, and you you know the producer, the director get that amazing member of cast that they wanted, have there been very specific implications for you in terms of the budgeting in situations like that? Yeah, there's always a cast implication. I mean. As soon as you start getting you know, in, those names attached, uh, or even going to that, it's, the, it's not just the credibility of the script. I mean, if, if you're lucky enough to work with a director that is well-known, it becomes an easier sell. Uh, if the director is less known, uh, then you have to rely on the credibility of the, of the actual script itself. Um, and then once you come into the financial side of things, it's, it's how do you get to the, those, those actors? Because, like Rebecca said, if you, if you get a cast member, most of the time they'll be receptive because in the day they want to work, they want to do good work. Um, but it's it's going through the agents. It's 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 that thing of how do we get past them through? And it's that with you know HODs, you, you do the same thing. And usually it's the finance. It's the kind of thing that this is what we're offering uh, for X amount of weeks or days. Um, and then depending on, say, if someone's coming from abroad or if, they're coming, if you're shooting in London but they're from Glasgow or from L.A. or wherever, it's that kind of offer of we can offer flights, the accommodation, it's that kind of the, the per diems that the, the company will give to them. 
And then it's the, the restrictions that you might have. The, the, you know, depending on the size of the actor, I'm sure if you went to someone like Will Smith and you know, he agrees to do it for 10 million quid, that's his fee. You sit there going, oh, it's a good deal. What's the excess that comes with? He wants a personal trainer. He wants to have his, his own trailer. He wants to have his entourage. It's stuff like that. I mean, that's on the grand scale, but it's still, in terms of that ratio, there is still elements like that through a lot of the cast that you go to. Uh, and it's, it's up to someone like myself to kind of make that happen. But then you have to look at the bigger picture of, say, if you've got an ensemble cast, you know, like I did a film called Free Fire, where we have 13 cast. All of them are kind of in that pedigree of, you know, if you looked at them, you go, that's the same kind of pedigree. You don't want to look at it and go, I'm giving this person a star trailer, whilst I'm sticking this person in a, diff- in a room on its own. with a, a ca-. So you have to kind of play the game uh, and make sure you're, you're completely you're equal and fair. And I know a lot of agents will kick up a fuss and say, oh, you know, we think, you know, this person is worth that. And you kind of sit there and you, and unfortunately, that's where the friction comes with agents and myself is they say, no, you know, you, this is what we're paying. This is what we have. If you don't like it, uh, and for me, I kind of sit there going, yes, if it was someone like, you know, Anthony Hopkins or Sean Curry, I'm going to, me personally, I'll sit there going, I'll try and do as much as I can do. But at the same time, if the producer is on side with me and say, look, this is what we can afford, we agree collectively, that's, we're not going to go above that because it sets a wrong precedent, I can quite easily go back and say no. So there is always excess bits, the transport. How do you get them back and forth to set? You know, some actors, like the US actors, have portal-to-portal times. You can only have them for 12 hours from door-to-door. So you sit there going from... If you're doing a, a shoot and your, your day is 12 hours, you sit there going, OK... You know, how do I utilise that? How do I make that work? Uh, usually it's a lot of it is that kind of making sure if we're shooting in London, make sure you're, you're putting your main cast member two minutes away so the travel time is minimised so you can maximise it. So it's stuff like that you have to, but the, the basic financials is how do you maintain that because the fee is one thing and then it's just the infrastructure, which is usually forgotten. It's that kind of thing of we have to fly someone from LA and you kind of sit there going, OK, if it's going to be... Johnny Depp, he's going to be one, going to be first class. So straight away, you're looking at ten grand, you know, for a first class single flight. You're sitting there going, okay, how many times do you want to go back? It's stuff like that, and it does drain your budget. And then there's the next level of actor who won't even go on commercial flights. But once you've got that kind of problem, then you're into a whole nother level. Um, next question. Hi, um, I went to see Second Coming actually, and then met Debbie. Debbie Tucker Green, because she had a hang, her play at the Royal Court, yes. as well, quite soon after that. Um, so I was wondering how you got involved with, how did you, how did you get into that film, basically? Second coming, I can't remember. Uh, I, 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 I got did a, you know Polly and Kate before? I, did, I, did, I, I think I got, uh, my, my career has always been word of mouth. Uh, it's always been, you know, going on to the uh, uh, second coming, I think because it was a film for you know, BFI film, I wasn't known to them at the time. Uh, so I, I, when I met Polly and Kate, the producers, I obviously said the, the right thing. Uh, and then when Debbie and I met, uh, Debbie is a character that both she and I would always take the piss out of each other. It was always that kind of, that stereotype like we would do with a DP. You always say DP needs more lights than you list. Whereas with, with Debbie, we would have that very love-hate relationship, which, which worked because Debbie is one of those people that was, was very clear exactly what she wanted. She's only done, I think she's only done one TV movie 
before, but she was very clear because of her theatre background, she was very clear what exactly what she wanted. But for Second Coming, uh, I think it was very much word of mouth, said, look, go and meet. And it's that kind of thing. Because I had a commercial background, you, on a commercial, you learn to do stuff for, for the cheap. There's that kind of thing of how much how we have to shoot this music video for five grand. You know, we still have to have a high production value. How do you do that? So for me, even though there is still a bit of a stigma about going from commercial corporates onto doing features, for me, if you've got a, 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 that background going into features, it will pay dividends because you know how to do things in a cheaper way. Not to say you've got a lower production value or anything, but you kind of look around it and not just the kind of, this is how we've got to do it. You, you open the box up, you kind of say, this is how we've got to do it. So for a film like Second Coming, because there were so many demands on it with, with uh, the kid or with Idris, you know, say with Idris, we had, I think we had like 10 or 15 days on a 30-day skit. It's how do we utilise him? You know, it, it's balancing that act with, with these, those actors. And again, Debbie is someone, because she's got a theatre background, will want to rehearse, want, really want to get build up those characters. You develop the, the child actor, you know, and it's, it's, it's that where, compared to, say, like a film like Free Fire, which you've got 13 guys in a room all with AK-47s, your rehearsal time is can you hold a gun, can you fire it? Whereas with, with uh, you know, Second Coming, you've got a kid and you know, how do you develop that? But yeah, Second Coming was... Uh, I think it's also about personal relationships, isn't it? Because if I'm right, it was also that Alberto Pasolini knew you and knew Polly. Polly had worked with him and he'd, he'd recommended you. So I think you know, those personal relationships are the currency. They count for a great deal. This is a question for Michael, and I'm going to use a word that line producers probably don't like, but um, ballpark figures or guesstimates or kind of early stage um, budget planning. So once um, we've got someone like yourself involved and we've got a script, we can go through it. I understand how we develop a budget. But quite often, um, when you're looking for development money, um, you've got an idea, you've got a treatment, you're starting to move towards a script, and they're asking you what, your bu- you know, what budget... Is, are you expecting the film to be? Now, a lot of us here as kind of lower budget filmmakers will basically say, whatever you'll give me, I'll figure out a way to make it for that money. But I know that's not obviously the, the right answer. So it's about how you start to put a budget together when you're at that early stage, perhaps before you can even... I mean, because one of the things we want development money for is to bring in a line producer to be able to break down the script and give us an idea of exactly what the budget's going to be. But before we get to that, how do we start to think about what the, the budget's going to be? Well, it's kind of like, what's the bread and butter of that script? I mean, straight away, you know, if you're looking at a script going, everything from how many locations, how many cast members. Um, I mean, if you kind of forget about the fee side of thing, from cast to crew and all that. That's one big side of things that you, that it's, it's how long a piece of string. You know, you could pay national minimum wage to, you know, thousands and thousands a week. You kind of sit there and go, that's one side. What's the actual infrastructure of your script that's there? Um, and for me, whenever I look at it from a development side of things, it's being a bit realistic. If you're kind of writing a piece saying that, you know, such and such walks into Buckingham Palace. There's the connotation straight away. You kind of sit there going, if you're going, uh, you know, such and such walks into Kings Cross Station, there's connotations there because straight away you have to think, okay, if I'm putting a camera up, what happens? What's the cost factor? Who do I have to talk to? What permissions? There's various different bits where if you've got such and such walks into an empty room, you know, it's that building that's that. So when 
I look at a script, and I'm sure people do it differently, it's very much the infrastructure, forgetting all the action that's there. Start from the basics. My first day is always look at all the, I'll list all the locations down, then go back characters and then go back to the action and see what's there so straight away if I see someone on a, a stunt that's going off a, m a moped and all that sort of, straight away there my circle lines are saying I need to talk to the producer director say what exactly is happening in this scene is it just someone falling off or is it a jump or is it this so again it's my interpretation and then asking for them to say what's their interpretation what actually is going to happen and it's, it's quite quickly, once you have talking heads in the room saying, actually, it's going to be jumping two cars, da, 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 you can straight away go, OK, you've got the cost of the cars, you've got the cost of the stuntman, you've got the, you know, it's, straight, it's that kind of effect that I, I find. But again, I think it's, uh, it's the talking head side. And I think once you're doing a script, like I said, I did a film called Borrow Time, I read the script, it doesn't lend itself to be a £5 million film. You kind of sit there going, it's got a couple of locations a couple of dress, but a lot of it is in one big front room or one big scene here or just the location here. So straight away from a practical point of view, it's, for me, I'm looking at it going, it's not going to cost a million quid to make this. So there is that kind of, even if we don't, we've never made a film before, I can always look at it and go, that looks, that sounds expensive, that doesn't look, you know, so there's that bit. Uh, and then you start, you break it down even further to kind of the, the time restrictions, the kids, the dogs you know, the vehicles, that sort of basics and how many. And obviously, the more you have of a certain thing, the more it costs. So it's those sort of basics. But usually I find if you read a script and, you know, I'm sure if they read Little House on the Prairie, you're sitting there going, that's not going to cost a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Whereas if you read Mission Impossible, you sit there going, that's going to cost, yeah, a shitload. So it's that, it's kind of common sense, I'd really... Hi there, yeah, this is uh, for Rebecca. It's just uh, in regards to the kind of the Kickstarter process, because again, crowdfunding is a bit of a slightly different ballgame, I guess. But um, I just wondered what, if you, uh, when you uh, set it up, did you kind of pitch? Did you do like a video pitch? And if so, were there any kind of perks involved just to kind of get the appeal of you know, backers behind you? Yeah, we did a video. Um, it's pretty terrible. It's <laughs> so embarrassing doing a video. Um, he did everything but Kickstarter. Kickstarter has quite a lot of help and guidelines on the website that tells you how to make a good campaign. So we tried to follow that as best we could. Um, in terms of perks, again, a lot of people sort of give T-shirts and posters and you know do all these amazing things. But then actually, when you, when you get down to it, you don't want to be doing that after shooting a film. You don't want to be mailing out T-shirts to people. It's you got so we kind of thought, what do people actually want? And what, what can we actually be bothered to give them, <laughs> in a way? Um, so we did do a few perks. Um, I can't think what the perks were. I think if you gave £100, you would come to the premiere, the first screening. If you gave more than that, you were executive producer. But um, we didn't kind of say, if you give 50 quid, you can come on set for the day, because that would have been a nightmare. Um, and also, also, I think it, it, it's usually your friends and family giving money, and they don't really need... Presence. They just want to give money towards a film, and it, it kind of would you know if people backed a certain amount, would you say like okay, you get to see kind of the process of it? Would that be a bit more appealing to backers? Would you say? Maybe. I just we were really careful not to promise too much with the with the rewards because we were both working full time and doing the short on the side, and if we promised too much, it, it, 
it would have been a nightmare having to do things. We, you know, we did updates throughout the campaign, but not any kind of video diaries or anything. I think if, you know, it also depends a lot on what the film is about. Our film was quite serious about a fire control operator. So we couldn't really do any, any fun behind the scenes footage. It wasn't really like that. <laughs> it was quite a... No, <laughs> no. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, people are so different with their Kickstarter campaigns. Um, you've got to try and keep it lively and fresh, but you don't want to be promising too much. Would and you use it again it. as a funding model? Um, I would, but not for a few years, because I've asked my family for so much money, <laughs> and I can't do that for a few years. So. Thank you. Uh, you've, all three of you have touched upon uh, the importance of having conversations early on with, with the DP or the VFX uh, team to itemise the cost of certain shots or certain rigs and how these might work within your budget. Do you ever have the same uh, conversations at an early stage with a composer or sound designer or is that always left to post-production? Yes and no. It's depending on the film, really. Uh, you know, if I'm doing a, 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 say a period piece, you do have those conversations, but it's not as in-depth as, say, you know, like we did this film, Free Fire, where we're having a lot of, of gunplay. So, obviously, sound uh, is quite pivotal for, that, for those films. And again, you know, it's one of those, for every film, sound is... It's kind of forgotten about. It's always the joke on set, waiting for sound. But at the same time, you know, for me, it's ex- it's equal to, you know, how it looks. So there is that conversation. But usually, when it comes to composer, unless it's a, di- a director who knows exactly who the composer is, or the feel of the film, or you know, usually with the bigger budget, if you've got a bigger budget, you have a bit of luxury. You can go to a composer, and it's like that interview process. But at the same time, I usually find in my final weeks of post and wrapping things up is when the kind of composer, because the director then knows what he or she has in the can, to kind of say, this is what the kind of feel I have. I mean, they probably have CVs and, and showreels of, of composers, but they, they probably won't know and go for until they, what they have on script is usually completely different to what they have in the can. So once they have that and they're looking at the offline then they'll say, okay, let's, let's try and interview this composer and see what they want to bring to this material. Um, but sound design, yeah, it's depending on the film, really. But usually very much in that post-period. And Rebecca, did you have a sound designer in mind from the get-go? Yeah, for operator, sound is so important because it's a phone call and it's all about the phone call and the noise and the sound effects <laughs> that you can hear on the other end of the phone. So, so we knew it was going to be really important. Um, we were speaking to our sound recordist quite a lot before, before the shoot, and actually, unfortunately, he couldn't make it to the shoot um, oh my God. last minute dropout, which was quite stressful. So we had a new sound recordist for the shoot um, who didn't really know what was happening, uh, which was quite stressful. Um, so then when it came to sound design, it, we kind of started from scratch and away with a sound designer... Um, and we kind of did Foley and all that. But, I, yeah, I think um, I've learned from that experience to get a sound designer on board before the shoot, um, if you can, just so that they're, they know what's going on and they can start planning and telling you how much things are going to cost and how much time it will take. Um, 
I think that's really helpful if you have the luxury of doing that. Yeah. I mean, I think the key to all of this and the thing that just keeps coming out in so many of these panels is preparation, preparation, preparation. It just saves you time and it saves you money. And I think it makes for a better film, whatever that film is. So it only remains for me to say thank you so much to Michael and to Rebecca for giving up their Bank Holiday Monday. Thanks to Sarah, Rebecca and Michael and to you for listening. Get even more insight into managing a short film budget with a panel from our archive where a panel of producers take you behind the budget. That's at bafta.org forward slash guru.